Well, once again, thank you for joining us online. Um, Happy Easter. We are blessed to at least have the technology to gather remotely, even though it's not the same, even though this isn't what I would technically consider to be a church service. It is a blessing to know that even from our homes, we can gather and we can worship together in spirit and in truth. And um, what matters is what's going on in our hearts. That's really the most important thing. So we're praying that this would minister to your heart and, uh, and feed your heart as we even gather online. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Our most gracious God, our Father, we thank you for every good thing that you have blessed us with. We remember today, Lord, that we have so much, so much to be thankful for. To be thankful for the fact that you love the world so much that you sent your only Son, that whoever believes in him may have life and not perish. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to live the perfect life, a sinless life, and to die the death that we deserved, bearing the wrath against the sin of all who believe in him in order that we may be justified. Father, we have so much to be thankful for, and yet our hearts do grieve as we gather remotely rather than in person. We're reminded of what your word says about how good it is when brothers and sisters can gather together and meet. And we long for that day. But in the meantime, Lord, we ask that today as we study your word, that you would set our hearts and our minds and our desires and our affections on the risen Savior. In order that he may be glorified and in order that we may find comfort and strength in the truth of what he did, including raising from the dead. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you at home, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 34 today. And of course, uh, as always, I do recommend that you have your Bible with you and open. If you don't have a Bible, if you're at home and you don't have a Bible, there are plenty of good online ones. If you go to blueletterbible.org, that's one place where you can find multiple translations of the Bible. Uh, You could just go to Google and type in Acts, A-C-T-S, 17, uh, 30 to 34, and that would take you to what you would need for today. But I I do uh, encourage you to have your Bible with you if you do have a Bible. Today we gather remotely once again for something that many of us, to say the very least, had hoped would not be the case, and that is an Easter Sunday, a Resurrection Sunday in which we cannot gather in person due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, the resurrection is what we're celebrating today, but it's also something that we celebrate every Sunday when we gather. In fact, that's why we gather on Sunday, is to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. When most people think of, of Easter, their thoughts, I would have to imagine, would probably go first and foremost to things like 
the Easter bunny or to Easter egg hunts or to sunshine like we've got today. We've got beautiful sunshine today. Uh, it, it brings beautiful and, and very comforting thoughts of, of springtime and sunshine, maybe even family get-togethers. That's something that's always been a tradition in my household. Uh, so for most people, I think it's probably safe to say that the last thing that they would associate with Easter which is a day of celebrating the resurrection of Christ, the last thing that they would associate with Easter is God's judgment against their sin. Resurrection Sunday usually brings nothing but positive and happy thoughts to mind for most people, and judgment, well, that's just such a dark and dreary and and depressing thing. It's certainly something that people never like to think about, but it's also something that most people probably wouldn't associate even remotely with Easter, and yet the scriptures do. In fact, they draw a clear connection between the resurrection of Christ and God's future judgment against sin and sinners. In Acts chapter 17, let's go ahead and set the context. Understand what brings us to verses 30 and 34. What happens that leads us up to that point? Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the city of Athens. You might say he was uh, run out of some other towns where he was ministering and forced to go to Athens. Now, Athens was probably a lot like most major cities in the United States today. Uh, It was very heavily populated. There was a major, major emphasis on making something of yourself, of being educated. Uh, So they were a very intelligent people. They were very advanced. You might even call them progressive people. They were sophisticated people. In fact, in its heyday, in, in its time, there was no city in the world It was like this city that Paul found himself in, Athens. Some would argue that there are actually even uh, very few modern cities that are as great as Athens was in its heyday. It's known even to this day for its art and for uh, the volume of literature that was produced there. It's, it's known for also for its amazing architecture, uh, even to this day. And of course, it was well known and, and is still to this day well known for its philosophy. There have been few cities throughout all of human history that compare to the greatness of Athens in Paul's day. Athens was also, we should add, a very religious city. It was a very religious city. It is still remembered for being a place where you could find what was called the Pantheon. Now, if you know anything about the Greek that they spoke, uh, the word pan in Greek means all, and theon means gods. So it was a place for all gods. It's the city where you would have found what is known as the altar of the 12 gods, but those 12 gods were really just a start. In fact, they built shrines and houses of worship for every single imaginable god that was believed to have existed by anyone, except the one true living god, we should add. Um, One historian has noted that, quote, there were gods everywhere, Their shrines were scattered throughout the city and suburbs, end quote. 
It was even, uh, it's even been said that it was easier to find a particular God in Athens than it was to find a particular man if you went there looking for someone. So in many ways, Athens was very, very similar to a lot of the large cities that you see in the world today. And at one point in his ministry, Paul finds himself there. Now, Paul was very educated. He, he, was, he was very intelligent. Uh, he was very sophisticated in his speech and in his thought, his, his understanding. If you're familiar with Greek philosophy and you read through Paul's epistles, it's very clear that Paul was also very, very familiar with Greek philosophy as well. And we can be sure that Paul had at least heard of Athens before, just because it was such a major city. But it seems as though Acts chapter 17 marks the first time that he actually enters into the city and visits. Now, if you look at verse 16 in chapter 30, you'll see that it tells us Paul's reaction to entering the city and seeing all the, the things that he saw. It says in verse 16, chapter, 30, or, uh, chapter 17, It says, now while Paul was waiting for them, and he's referring to Silas and Timothy there. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So if you consider all the beautiful architecture there, if you consider all the beauty, all the things that this city had to offer, Paul apparently didn't notice those things. What his attention was drawn to was these idols, these idols. His spirit was unsettled by them, irritated. And in fact, the the Greek word that gets translated being provoked includes the word uh, sharp. So it's like there's something sharp prodding him, poking at him on the inside. His spirit is very, very unsettled. He's maybe even on the verge of anger. He's at least frustrated. He's got a deep frustration with what he sees as he observes and considers what the people of this great, great city were worshiping. And so he begins reasoning with some of the Jews in the synagogue, as was his, his practice, his tradition, any time he entered into a new city. He was not only reasoning with people in the synagogue, however, he was out in the marketplace. He was talking to whoever was willing to listen, whoever was willing to have a discussion about it. He was talking about the resurrection of Christ with them. Verse 18, if you look at verse 18 here in chapter 17, verse 18 is interesting because it tells us how those who were trained in philosophy responded to Paul and to the discussions that he was holding with people. They they were apparently listening, and apparently some of them were engaging in these conversations with him. And so we read in verse 18, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Now, why do they say that? It continues, it says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know, one of the vain 
arguments that has been answered and is, is really very stale, but it's still out there, um, is the, the idea that Christianity is not unique, that it actually um, is just a, a manifestation of a different Egyptian religion or you know, that it borrowed elements from other different religions, cultic religions. But if you read what's being written here, that is clearly not the case. What Paul was preaching... Jesus and him risen from the grave. What Paul was preaching sounded strange to these people who were familiar with every God and with every world religion known to man at the time. And so in one sense, it appears as though their interest was kind of piqued. They might be a little bit interested in what he had to say because it was something they hadn't heard before and they had to be thinking, I know of every God. Uh, I've never heard of this one. So the idea that Christianity uh, borrowed elements from other religions is obviously, obviously false. These people were intrigued by Paul's preaching about Christ and the resurrection. So if you go to verses 19 and 20, here we read the verses that really set the stage for the passage that we're going to be stopping with today and and really studying today. Uh, in, In verses 19 and 20, we read this. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, if you're not familiar with the Areopagus or the significance of being at the Areopagus, verse 21 tells us uh, what the significance of it is. It says, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So that's what people did at the Areopagus. And these philosophers bring Paul there so that he can talk about this thing that uh, that is new to them. And when we see this, we have to be thinking, what a wonderful opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel. And so what happens is that that's exactly what Paul does. He preaches the gospel. He gives a fantastic sermon, one of his most famous sermons that was preached on Mars Hill, which was a home for false gods, false philosophies, and idols. So Paul has gone from talking about Jesus and the resurrection on a a fairly private level, you know, talking with individuals in the synagogue and in the marketplace. He's gone from doing that to preaching out in an open forum where new ideas are discussed. And Paul preaches this amazing, amazing sermon, quoting from the philosophers that the people knew here and there in his sermon, demonstrating that he was indeed very familiar with all the things that these people believed. But what I want us to now fast forward to is the end of his sermon, the conclusion, which we find starting in verse 30. That's where his conclusion begins. And the conclusion is important because this is what everything in his sermon leads up to. This is what he's trying to direct his audience toward throughout the sermon. Now, if we were to summarize the point that Paul is going to conclude with, that Paul is is bringing his sermon to an end with, we could say that it's because Jesus rose from the dead, God's judgment against sin is certain. And if God's judgment against sin is certain, then repentance is necessary. Let me say that again. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, God's judgment against sin is certain. 
And if God's judgment against sin is certain, then repentance is necessary. So let's go ahead and examine the conclusion of his sermon. Let's look at verses 30 and 31. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let's go ahead and stop there for now. We should notice immediately that the concluding passage at hand begins with the word, therefore. In other words, this is the conclusion in light of the truth of all the things that have preceded this, that he has spoken up to this point. And what truth was that? What was his point of the sermon? Uh, the, The truth was that the false gods and the idols of the people were unworthy of worship. They're unworthy of worship. Those things that were built out of silver or stone or gold uh, that the Athenians worshipped, it was just that. It was just physical material. It was just rocks and gems and things like that. It didn't contain, it did not uh, represent the one true living God who was and is and always will be sovereign over all things, in control of all things. Those, those rocks did not contain or portray the true divine nature of God. So Paul points out that God has overlooked times of ignorance. God had overlooked times of ignorance. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean that God didn't care about sin and just kind of let it go? Uh, It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that God didn't deal with the sin of pagan nations who did not know and worship Jehovah as the one true living God. What it means is that he was patient with uh, with, with pagan civilizations. He didn't bring those civilizations to a ruin as he could have as a result of their idolatry in a massive outpouring of his holy wrath against the sin and the idolatry of the Gentiles. Now, Now think about for a second, how God dealt with Israel. Israel had a long history of turning to the gods and the idols of the nations that were around them, and what did God do? He punished them. When Israel pursued the false gods and the false idols of the nations, God dealt swiftly with Israel. He would raise up Israel's enemies and bring them in to take the Israelites into captivity. Uh, That was a temporal punishment. But when the pagan nations did the same thing, when the pagan nations worshipped false gods and false deities and idols, what did God do? Well, he didn't deal with them the same way he dealt with Israel. God doesn't deal with his enemies the same way he deals with his children, either in a temporal sense or in an eternal sense. But isn't it ironic that as much human knowledge that these people had, as the human knowledge of the world and of philosophical concepts had grown so much in the city of Athens, the level of ignorance that they had toward the one true living God remained unchanged. But Paul is making sure that they understand that offering worship to anything or to anyone other than the one true living God is ignorant. It's idolatry, and idolatry 
is ignorant. But Paul is saying that God is no longer overlooking that sin. He had done that before, but he's doing something new now. He's issuing an invitation to every tribe, every tongue, every nation to turn from their idols and in so doing to turn from their ignorance. So the time was at hand to repent and to believe in Jesus. He's urging them to see the the loving kindness and the graciousness of God that he would withhold temporal wrath from them in previous times. To see the, the goodness and the loving kindness of God in now sending the message of the gospel, the invitation to receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, who is risen from the dead and now lives and reigns forever and in him alone. But why would they, or why should they, do such a thing? The motivation, the reason, is clearly spelled out. It's clearly articulated in verse 31. Paul says, "...having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead." Paul's talking about an evidence. Evidence of God's judgment. In other words, these people needed to repent because God had ordained a day of judgment that was coming in which Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead in righteousness. And Paul says that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the one whose task this will be. So what does the resurrection prove according to Paul, according to what he says here? It proves at least two things. It proves, number one, that God's judgment against sin is certain. And secondly, it proves that Jesus will be the one to judge. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, every living person, every person since his resurrection has been given this obligation to see the resurrection and to repent because of the resurrection Every person has an obligation to turn from their idols and to worship the one true living God in spirit and in truth through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, God's judgment against sin is certain. And if God's judgment against sin is certain, wisdom dictates that repentance is necessary. Now, let's understand that the call to repentance, according to what Paul's saying here, is based upon the truth of the resurrection, the veracity of the resurrection. If if, If Jesus was not really raised from the dead, there's no need to repent. There's no need for a person to change the the object of their worship. There's no need for somebody to, to change the direction of their lives. Because as Paul said to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. But the good news is that the resurrection really did happen. It is true. And thus there is a need to repent. Prior to his own conversion, 
Paul was, was a Jew. He was, uh, he, he was a, a very prestigious Jew, a very educated Jew. He had all the things that the world would consider to be a good life. He, he was educated. He was respected. Uh, he was feared. He had power. He had influence. But Paul would go on to say in his letter to the Philippians that all those things were just nothing. They were, they were absolutely worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. There is no chance, there, there is zero chance that Paul would have forsaken all those great things by the world's standards if he wasn't completely convinced that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. How did he know for sure that Christ had been resurrected? Well, first and foremost, of course, he personally encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But it wasn't just him. He wasn't the only one who had encountered the risen Christ. As he explains to the Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at least 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And he was challenging the audience that he was writing to, telling them, hey, some of those people who saw him, some of those 500 are still alive, and in fact, they live amongst you. Ask them. Their lives were never the same. Their lives were never the same. Christianity, friend, Christianity was not founded on speculative philosophies or ideas. It wasn't built upon the, the thoughts and the desires and the plans and the schemes of a handful of people. Rather, the foundation of Christianity is the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, including Christ's perfect sinless life and his death and resurrection. So take any one of those elements away, and Christianity absolutely crumbles. And if you think about it, the world has certainly tried to attack those pillars of the Christian faith, which is actually great, um, which isn't, I mean, it looks like a bad thing on the surface, but it's one of those things where what man intends for evil, God, impl- uh, God intends for good, because historically, whenever error has been put forth, whenever the, the truth about Christianity has been challenged, Christianity has come back not only with solid, solid answers and confirmations of the faith, but with an even stronger faith and an even stronger confidence in God's promises than they did before the challenge was issued. So the truth is that the church for 2,000 years has withstood every single assault that's been leveled on the resurrection of Christ. You think people haven't tried to disprove it? Of course they have. But the church has responded more than adequately, more than soundly for 2,000 years. Now, there are multiple, multiple lines of proof when we're talking about the resurrection. There are all kinds of ways that you can prove that it really happened, which we could just spend hours on end talking about. And, and really, there are many wonderful, helpful books and resources on the subject. If that's something that you are interested in, uh, shoot me an email. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. But for the, the sake of time today, I simply want to say that nobody has ever, ever been able to disprove the resurrection and the proof, the evidence of it being real real, uh, a real literal historical event is simply overwhelming. So you might be asking, if that's true, 
why don't more people believe in it? Why does anybody doubt it if the evidence is so abundant? And that's a good question. And the only answer is given by Scripture. The answer is that man, by nature, is only inclined to suppress the truth about God in man's own unrighteousness, including the truth about Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, and the implications of the resurrection. And you might be asking, what implications could there possibly be of the resurrection? Well, that's what Paul's getting at here. Let's start with this. If it's true that Jesus has risen from the dead, if it's true that he's been resurrected, then Jesus is God incarnate, just as he claimed to be. He's Lord. And if it's true that Jesus Christ is Lord, then it's true that every person is obligated to subject themselves to him in faith and obedience. If Christ is risen and is therefore Lord of all, then none of us have any right to continue in our steadfast resistance and rebellion against God. If Jesus is truly risen from the grave, what Paul is saying here is that we must turn from our sin. We must repent. We must forsake our idols. So the first thing that we need to to see here is that the resurrection is true. It really happened. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. That, That is true. It happened historically. Christ really did literally and physically. It wasn't just his spirit or something like that. He, he literally and physically rose from the dead. The second thing that we need to see is that the reality of the resurrection, according to what Paul's saying here, the reality of the resurrection guarantees that God will judge the world. Now, Paul notes three different aspects of this judgment. First, he notes that there is a day There's a day that God has ordained, that God has fixed for judgment. You know, as you look around the world today, if you look at the way that people sin all over the place, and and it seems like nothing is being done about it, you you see that, that sin is abounding, it's easy to slip into the error of thinking that either God doesn't care about sin, or that he cares about it, but he's not actually going to do anything about it. Maybe you think that God has even changed his mind about what constitutes sin, or what is good and what is evil, what he, what he will permit and what he won't permit. And if that's you, if you think that God would change his mind about what is evil and what is not evil, the person who thinks that, to be frank, doesn't know God. Not the God of the Bible who is, by the essence of his nature, unchanging. He's unchanging. He never changes. It's impossible for God to change. So sin might look like it's winning the day. Sin might look on the surface like it's prevailing and that God isn't going to do anything about it. But that simply is not the case. There is a day, Paul's saying, there is a day a day that God has fixed in which it will all be dealt with. Maybe you're wondering to yourself, why in the world would God wait? Why would he, why would he uh, let it go on so long and, and so rampantly? Why doesn't he just do something about it right now? And the answer I'd say is twofold. First of all, 
Let's keep in mind that God keeps sin on a leash, so to speak. The world has never, you, you and I, we have never even imagined what unrestrained sin would look like. We don't see all the things that God does not allow to happen. We only see the things that he does allow to happen. But he also waits because he's got plans and purposes and promises to fulfill, even while sin appears to prevail. Peter writes this, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the Bible teaches that God has elected a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every generation, and until the fullness of the elect comes in, he's patient, and he waits. And as he waits, his judgment waits. This day is fixed. This day is coming. That could be 500 years from now, or that could be five seconds from now. We don't know, but God does. God does. So the first aspect of God's judgment against sin is that there is a day that has been fixed. The second aspect, according to what Paul says here, is that there's a fixed standard by which Christ will judge the world. That being righteousness. That's the standard by which Christ will judge the nations. How foolish it is for anyone to think that God would judge the world by any other standard. And yet, how tempted are we to look at some of the more heinous acts going on in the world today, to look at somebody like, like Hitler or you know, fill in the blank with somebody who, who commits all kinds of atrocities and to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person, so God is going to judge me by how good I am in comparison to others. No, friend, that is simply not the case. God does not grate on a curve. He will judge according to his own righteous standard. And what is that righteous standard? Where does that standard come from? Who determines what is and what is not righteous? The answer is God does. It's not based on the things that your friends and your neighbors might think are are good or bad. Uh, Society does not dictate what morality is. Morality is a fixed standard. Righteousness is a fixed standard. And either society hits the mark or they don't. Look at what the world calls good. And look at what God calls good, as revealed in Scripture. They are clearly not the same thing. So whose standard will prevail? The world's or God's? In the end, ultimately, God's standard of righteousness will prevail. That's the standard by which men and women will be judged. So the question, therefore, is not, you know, how do, you, how do you stack up in comparison to your neighbor? The question is not how good a person are you compared to the worst people you could possibly imagine. No, the question is, have you lived up to God's standard of righteousness? And the answer is no. No, you haven't. And neither have I. And neither have any of us. No child of Adam ever has. So, how is anyone saved? That's a good question. 
And the answer is through faith in Jesus. I'm not here to invite you to say some prayer. I'm not here to invite you up to the altar to to fill out a card or anything like that. I'm here to ask you to, to demand that you believe in Jesus. That's more than just an invitation, more than a request. It is a demand that God puts on every person to repent and to believe in Jesus. See, Jesus alone lived a perfect life. He never ever sinned. He never once strayed from the will of the Father. And as such, he alone is qualified to stand in the place of sinners who will repent and believe in him, bearing the wrath of God in their place so that they stand before God, cleansed and forgiven of sin in the very righteousness of Christ. Christ not only took our sin upon himself, and paid the, sin, paid the price for that sin. But he also gave to us, he, he transferred to us his own perfect righteousness so that when we stand before God, that's what we stand in, not standing in our sin. God's perfect standard of righteousness, friends, is himself. God is his own perfect standard of righteousness. So if you are not in Christ... You do not have his righteousness covering you. But if you have believed in Christ, you stand in his own righteousness before God. The day of judgment is fixed. The standard of judgment is God's righteousness. And third, Christ Christ has been the one appointed to the task of judging Paul says, he, talking about God, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Who's that man? You know, people will commonly say, only God can judge me. But this judge is both fully God and fully man. And his resurrection from the dead proves that he has the authority to judge. Given what Paul says about this future day of judgment, The question then is, friend, do you stand in Christ's righteousness or do you stand in your own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all? If you've realized that you haven't lived up to his perfect standard, here is your warning. Jesus will judge by that standard. And if you have not believed in him, then he has not cleansed you of sin and clothed you in his own righteousness so that you do then stand in your own righteousness, which is filthy rags, according to Isaiah. So I urge you to be reconciled to God by believing in Jesus. Here's your chance. Here's here's the offer, here's the invitation, here's the demand that God puts on us to repent and believe because our own righteousness simply doesn't measure up to his own standard. And for that reason, I urge you to do exactly what Paul was urging the Athenians to do, to repent, to forsake of your own righteousness, to forsake it all, and to receive Jesus Christ alone as your righteousness before God, and to receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
Many of you, especially those of you who live here in the state of Washington, have heard of a man named Harry Truman. And of course, Harry Truman is not to be confused with the former president. Uh, Harry Truman was a man who lived down on Spirit Lake, which is near Mount St. Helens. Truman had been warned and warned and warned multiple times that there were indications that Mount St. Helens was about to erupt in a volcanic catastrophe. But he refused to believe it because all he'd ever seen was the mountain being calm. And so he believed that because that's all he'd ever seen, that that's what the future would hold as well. And because he didn't heed these warnings, because he didn't believe that the day of a volcanic eruption was coming, he stayed right where he was. And of course, Mount St. Helens did erupt, and it cost Truman his life. He, he had made the mistake of thinking that because the mountain had never erupted before, at least that he had seen, that it never would. Many people today make the exact same mistake when it comes to the certain judgment of God upon the world. They don't heed the warnings of those who proclaim the gospel and the necessity of faith and repentance, and they ignore those warnings to their own peril. So I urge you today, friend, to heed this warning that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The day is fixed. The day is certain. And no matter how much it feels like it's never going to happen, nothing could be further from the truth. And the thrust, the, the gist of, of Paul's argument here with the Athenians is that the resurrection of Christ proves it. It ensures it. Now, very briefly, let's consider what happened following Paul's sermon in Athens. Let's look at verses 32 to 34. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The idea of the resurrection seemed absolutely absurd to the Greek mind. It was foolishness as far as they were concerned in general. Paul would write uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, he'd say, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling, blocks, uh, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both, Greeks and, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, in the Greek mind, the cross and the resurrection was just pure foolishness. It was utterly foolish. And as a result, many of these philosophers, what we see here is they mocked Paul for the message that he preached. But some appear to have been perhaps intrigued and expressed an interest in hearing more about it later. In other words, what they did is they procrastinated to say the least. It's possible also that they were mocking him. Maybe some of them were, but it's clear that some of them did take Paul's urging to heart. They repented, and they believed savingly. 
See, to, to repent simply means to change direction. It's a part of believing in a saving manner. You can't separate repenting from believing. So see how Paul is urging them to repent in verse 31? If you look at your Bibles, verse 31, he says he's urging them to repent. And then if you look at verse 34, he says that those who did believed. So those terms are almost interchangeable. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. They turned away from their idols, away from the things that they previously worshipped, away from the things that they had previously lived for, and they turned to Christ in saving faith. So we see three responses to the resurrection. Some mocked, some perhaps procrastinated, and some believed. Some believed. They turned from their idols. They, they turned from their sin. They repented. They they turned from the idea that they could be saved by just being a good person, by being better than their neighbor, by their own efforts at righteousness. And they replaced their own righteousness, which again, is no righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ. They received the righteousness of Christ as their very own, and thus they would be saved. The judgment that they were deserving of was paid in full, not by them, but by Christ. And the resurrection proves it. I'm here today, friends, to urge you to do the same thing. To repent and to believe in Christ. To receive the righteousness of Christ as your very own. Pardon for sin and peace with God. Consider the goodness of God that you would hear the offer of grace and forgiveness and redemption that God offers through the gospel, and that you would hear it before that day comes, before it's too late. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, God's judgment against sin is certain. And if God's judgment against sin is certain, then you must repent. And believe in Christ. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Now friend, how are you going to live in light of that truth? Let's pray. Our most holy, gracious, and loving God, we thank you for the time that we had to study your word today. We thank you for the day that Christ rose from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over sin, and any and, other, any and every other opposing force. Our Father, your, your word instructs us to rejoice in the Lord always. And we confess that for many of us, rejoicing has been the furthest thing from our minds lately. And we confess that this is not your doing, but that this is our doing, that we have focused our minds and focused our attention too much on our circumstances at the cost of focusing on our Savior. And so we ask today that you would give us the grace to stay focused on the Savior to focus on his work, his work of taking our sin upon himself and taking the just punishment that was due in the place of all who would believe in him.
that he died, that he rose again, that we too may have life. Life everlasting. Fellowship with the triune God. Spiritual life and fellowship that even death cannot overcome. So give us an assurance we ask, O Lord, that because Christ lives, by grace through faith in Christ, we too now live in Him. Fill us with confidence for the present and hope for what is to come, that Christ may be glorified. O Lord, that is our prayer, that Christ would be glorified and that your people may see that because of the work of Christ, living the perfect life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserved to die. Because of that, we may be comforted and always able to rejoice in him because he lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.